0: Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto.
1: Okay, welcome back to the show. I appreciate you joining us here tonight. We have a lot going on. This is the second half, so exciting stuff. Stay with you and uh stay on the bus here. Keep your elbows in. We're on the road to recovery here, and you're with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. We have a lot to talk about going forward in the next hour, but something that kind of really kind of got my attention uh, was an article not long ago. It's it's captioned, pain, pain, go away, tips on how to manage your child's aches and pains. Now, you know, I have grown kids. Uh, I can honestly say that I'm sure there were times where they said they were ill and they weren't and, you know, kept out of school and so on. Uh, No different than pretty much every other kid. But no one thinks of their children of being in pain. Uh, But of course it happens, right? According to Jennifer Stinson, she's a nurse practitioner with the chronic pain program at the hospital for sick kids. And, uh, she deals, she, each child, she says copes with pain differently. So here's some stuff we can go through briefly. And then we have an expert that's going to join us here to kind of back up this conversation. Uh, but if my child's in pain, uh, but I'm not sure what's going on, or there's some ways to gauge their level of pain. So we're going to go through some of these questions with our guest here and get some expert advice on how to deal with your kid in pain and how to know if they actually are, you know, it's having a conversation with somebody just off topic here a little bit about their pet. And we were talking about their pet not being well. And, you know, my the friend I was talking to felt really badly because she just didn't really understand how to understand, you know, that the dogs can't talk. The animals can't talk, apparently. So clearly, not, at least not the ones in real life. And, you know, how do you know that they're uncomfortable or they're in pain? And then, you know, it kind of stretched out to little kids. And, you know, do we take them seriously when they say they have a tummy? Do they really have a tummy or was it just too much chocolate? All that kind of stuff. So I think it's a great conversation to have. And I'm having that conversation right now with Dr. Dina Kulik. She's a pediatrician and founder of uh, Kid Crew Clinic. And uh, we're going to find out all about that. And uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Dina. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for staying up late. So um, conversation about kids in pain, obviously nothing new, right?
2: No, it's uh, how, how we roll. We all have pain sometimes.
1: Okay. So uh, real quick, though, before we kind of get into this, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the Kid Crew Clinic?
2: Sure. So Kid Crew is a multidisciplinary kids health clinic in Toronto, and we provide primary care and consulting care, all the subspecialties in pediatrics, allied health, such as speech therapy and psychology, et cetera. And we have dental partners, all under one roof. So we say one stop for kids' health.
1: That's brilliant. Thank That's you. Just, no, no, is, seriously. I almost want to have a kid just so I can use the service. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so here's the first question that, that we're, we're talking about. If, my, if, if a person, if their child is in pain and they're not sure what's going on, what are some of the ways that they can actually gauge uh, their levels of pain?
2: Well, it really depends on the child. So obviously a young child, a young toddler or a baby who's not yet speaking it's obviously a lot more challenging to ascertain what might be the cause. So for those younger babies, we often watch, like, what are they doing? Are they touching certain body parts? Are they grabbing their ears? Are they touching their chest or their diaper area? Are they having challenges with feeding, for example, where that might be because of ear pain or mouth pain? Do they have a fever? Do they have a cough? Do they have other symptoms that might be helping us to decide where might their discomfort be coming from. And then obviously older children, if they're verbal, can more easily tell us usually what their concern might be. Of course, there's many children that have challenges describing their pain to us, whether they have developmental challenges or behavioral challenges. Mm-hmm. Those children sometimes are more challenging to figure it out, just as would be the case with the baby.
1: So there's a, some stuff I read recently. I don't know how you feel about it, but they were talking about using diagrams uh, so your kid can actually point to the parts of their body that hurt, or ask them to draw a picture of the thing of the parts of their body that hurt. And is that something that you you know think is, is valid? Or is it just a kind of an old wives tale, so to speak?
2: Well, sometimes I think it depends on the developmental stage and the age of the child. My own kids, I have four, my kids are between wow. the ages of four and 11. Yeah, busy, busy family. <laughs> um, they luckily are at a place in their ages that they can tell me what they're feeling, right? So I don't, right. I wouldn't have to ask. My four-year-old to draw me a picture, he would laugh at me and say, "But I'm telling you, my arm hurts, right?" But a younger child or a child that has some developmental challenges, you might want to use pictures or um, you know diagrams or even just pointing to areas. It doesn't have to be with words. They can sometimes show us, you know, physically what is bothering them.
1: Four kids, huh?
2: Four kids, yeah. Wow.
1: <laughs> and three dogs. You don't, you don't see enough of them at work.
2: <laughs> I like children. I like children. I like organized chaos. I say
1: Oh, you're amazing. I, I, I'm liking you more by the moment for sure. Um, what, what do I need to know about giving my kids, uh, over the counter medications, pain medications, you know, it seems to be Advil, more, more Motrin, Tylenol, Tempera. They were around in my day still seem to be the go-to, um, how to, how should parents, should they need to be careful with this? Or, I mean, can you provide it, you know, when my kids, were a little bit warm and you know weren't sleeping, and a little bit uh, you know, scratchy throat. We immediately threw you know the baby Advil at them, their baby Tylenol at them, um, or and as they got older, the same thing. Uh, is this something that parents can do feeling some comfort, or should they be cautious?
2: I think generally speaking, parents can use these kind of medicines that are over the counter. I do mm-hmm. recommend though always for families to review their child's weight with mm-hmm. their doctor to know for sure what the best dose is because many families will use too much or you're at risk of using too little. And if you don't know exactly your child's weight, that can pose a challenge. And then also the dosing frequency. So acetaminophen, that being Tylenol or Tempra, can be given every four to six hours. And ibuprofen, like Advil or Motrin, can be given every six hours. So I recommend for families to review with their healthcare provider what the child's recent weight is like we do this for families at kid crew on each visit, we write down for them, their child's current weight, and actually we write down the dose of ibuprofen and acetaminophen for them should they need post vaccine, for example. And then when parents give the medicine, I recommend that the caregiver writes down how much they gave and I what agree. time. So yeah. if there's another caregiver that comes along and yeah. isn't quite sure when that we're not giving too much or too frequently.
1: I love it. Um, my kid, if a kid has uh, headaches, you know, or they complain constantly about a stomach ache or a headache, um, but in headaches in particular, um, is there something that parents can do? Like I know when I get headaches, you know, I, I suffer from mild migraines, so I need to be dark. It needs to be dark. I need to relax. It needs to be quiet. Um, can we do the same thing for kids? I mean, you can't just keep throwing pills down their throat for sure. Um, you know, life, people are talking about things like lifestyle changes in this article, uh, like getting plenty of rest, staying physically active, eating healthy meals and snacks. I mean, kind of the stuff you would go, duh, you know, makes sense. Right. Um, but if a kid is frequently having headaches, um, my obvious thinking would be you get to a specialist, right. Or at least to their family doc. Um, but what can you do if it's just something that you're going to sort of have to cope with?
2: Well, I think for the occasional headache or belly pain to use over-the-counter medicines is reasonable. If a family's finding they're having to give pain medicine more than once a week, or there's you know concerning symptoms, the child's vomiting, unable to attend school or daycare, waking them up in the middle of the night, those sorts of things, absolutely sure of you should review with your healthcare provider. Those kids need to be examined. We need to make sure we don't need to do any investigations like imaging for head uh, pain, et cetera. But if it's an occasional use, that typically is okay with the appropriate doses and dosing strategy we we spoke about. But certainly if you're needing to give kids medicine frequently or they're having those kind of red flags like waking at night with pain, definitely you want to see your doctor in person.
1: Uh, we only got a little bit of time left. I'd love to have you come back on again, uh, for sure, because we just never going to have enough time. Uh, but uh, same thing with tummy pain, right? Pain scales, uh, you know, with when I deal with patients and I'm talking in my practice and we're talking about uh, levels of anxiety, levels of depression, you know, one to five, is it five being a lot one being mild, uh, good to do with kids as it relates to pain scales.
2: Helpful, but I do find that kids are get confused by these sort of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like even adults, like if you say, how's your pain now? They might think about it. If you ask them in an hour, is the scale really the same? There are, there is some evidence that pain scales are helpful. We use them in the emergency room all the time. But if you're trying to compare one moment to another, I think it's, you know, oftentimes with the young kids, especially, I would rather ask something like, is it a little bit? Is it a lot? Is the worst pain you've ever had? You know, like more kind of less granular and more big picture. But I'm also looking at how is a kid behaving? I mean, some children will say they're in an awful lot of pain, and they're running around the exam room. Like, I'm not so worried about you, depending on on what you're saying. It's also much more for me about the clinical picture. What is a child doing in front of me? Are they drinking? Are they interacting? Are they moving around? And I use that much more, that clinical judgment piece versus just what they're saying all the time.
1: Real quick, we got about 30 seconds. Uh, I'm talking to Dr. Dina Kulik. Uh, she's the pedi- pediatrician and a founder of a, a Kid Crew Clinic. You have to check them out if you've got kids. Real quick, um, pandemic, lockdown, isolation, you must be very busy with kids that are having a difficult time sleeping. Um, are you seeing a big increase in that kind of stuff?
2: For sure. I mean, it's been two years of many phone conversations and in-person visits for kids that are sick. Still, parents are very, very stressed about it. I do not think any numbers have gone down. From what I can see, though, of course, kids and most adults don't have access to PCR testing, and rapid testing seems less and less accurate with each strain that comes. Certainly still very, very busy with viral illnesses. Luckily, kids do mostly very well with COVID, and it's flu-like illness, and they're not very comfortable for a few days, but the illness passes pretty quickly for most.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Dina Kilik. We'll have her back on again. We're going to come back. We've got more stuff to do here on The Road to Recovery. This is Yonabud Bud 640 Toronto.
0: Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on six forty Toronto.
1: Okay, welcome to the last segment of hour one. You're listening to the Road to Recovery here on six forty Toronto. I'm Yona Bud. I'm your host, and thanks for joining us. If you're just tuning in, we got so much going on. You missed a whole bunch of great stuff, but we got some incredible stuff coming forward. So stay with us. We got another hour to do after this, and. uh, Stick with us and have some fun and share some information. And you do that by dialing 416-870-6400. If you want to send me a text, 647-488-0086. So we're talking uh, in this segment really about police force, um, the struggle that they're having. Police forces really worldwide, certainly in North America, uh, are having a problem dealing with the or struggling really with meeting the demands of people who are in crisis. So, you know, I have situations all the time where a patient is uh, struggling, having a hard time at home, maybe going through some uh, uh, real depressive state or perhaps a manic state where they're really acting strangely. And, you know, first thing I do is I tell the family, call 911. Um, and typically I have the opportunity to work with the officers who are on site, on site uh, at least in a discussion uh, about what's going on with the patient so that I'm able to give them some feedback and uh, some support in terms of uh, background information and so on. And, and frankly, the officers that I deal with day to day and there's you know, there been times, many times where I've showed up to crisis scenes and suicide calls uh, in tow working for the family and showing up and having uh, police officers and 911 responders there. And they do a, a, really an exceptional job with the skills and the abilities that they have. And that's really the key piece here is police officer response to situations that might just be outside of their purview, outside of their learning, outside of their skill set, or their comfort zone, to say the least. Such a guy, Anthony uh, Hefferman, uh, he's 27-year-old. He was recovering from drug addiction. He was shot by police four times, including three times to the head and neck, uh, after officers were called to a Calgary motel in 2015. And they say that he was behaving strangely as he stood near beds with a lighter in his hand and a syringe, one assumes, full of, uh, of uh, gasoline or something, and didn't obey their commands. Uh, the serious response team was there. Um, the police shot him, and there was really, uh, there was investigated underway, but no charges were laid. Um, and the family found that that was a, a kind of a difficult pill to swallow. So it goes on. There's a, there's a whole discussion here uh, about police officers and, and response times. Uh, In 2021, there's a study in the Journal of Community Safety and Wellbeing that found that 75% of police involved civilian fatalities in Canada, involved a a person experiencing mental health crisis who was under or under the influence of substances or both. Psychologist Patrick Bailey, uh, Dr. Bailey, who consults for the Calgary Police Service, uh, he supports, as I do, more police officer training, says mental health professionals are teamed with officers, but only as a secondary response. And uh, this is a guy who's got his eye on the ball, and he's my guest this evening, Dr. Bailey. Welcome. Thank you. Okay, this is okay with you. I'm going to call you Patrick because we've chatted a little bit, and I think that we're we're past the ice cold stage. Um, so I've been, I've been, uh, I've been you know I read the article and sort of delved into it a little bit. Um, share with us perhaps uh, kind of off the top. We've got limited time, but share off the top sort of the result of your findings and kind of your perception of where we are in terms of police response in situations that may not be, you know, your average bank robbery, but people who feel like they may want to take their own lives or the lives of other others in the midst of a mental health crisis?
3: Thank you. And I, I think let's start with uh, a couple of things. One, our justice system, and by virtue of that, the police have often become the uh, government side of how we initially deal with many mental health crises. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to get access to psychologists, psychiatrists, clinical social workers, occupational therapists. It's difficult to get the supports in the community. And so sometimes people have had uh, deterioration to the point where a phone call is made to 911 and a dispatcher or a call taker is given a limited amount of information and needs to make a decision about how that call is going to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. It might simply be a call in which a mental health professional can go out or an EMS professional, or it may be a call in which the, the call taker and dispatcher believe that it needs to be dealt with by a police response. Um, sometimes that happens because the call taker has not been able to get enough information about what's going on. Or maybe there is a... Um, some information that suggests there may be a weapon involved. For example, somebody who's contemplating suicide and has a a large knife in their hand or has some other weapon. And so the the initial decision then gets made about how we're going to respond to this. And by and large, it's often not a mental health practitioner who's responding, it's the police who are responding and getting on scene and doing their own evaluation of what needs to happen. And then you get into what I referred to in that quote as the secondary response, where we have in Calgary a significant number of positive resources. We have a police and crisis team that pairs police officers with uh, members of Alberta Health Services. So you get the health side and the policing side responding to these calls. But that's not a primary response unit. They come out after the officers unseen have made their initial assessment. We have a mobile response team. We have a two-on-one line in Calgary for accessing mental health resources. But a number of smaller communities, even a number of larger communities, don't have these kinds of resources. And so you end up with individual police officers dealing with these challenging types of calls. I know in Toronto, they're
1: starting a couple of pilot projects. They've been trying them off and on for years. It's interesting. I was watching one of my favorite TV shows last night, which uh, um, Station 19, it's it's a fire station kind of show. Um, and they responded to a, a, a mental health crisis. And as they showed up to the call, uh, it was an ambulance call, they showed up to the call and here's this guy showing up on a little scooter with a helmet, kind of a little nerdy looking, and he was the crisis worker. And uh, he showed up to meet them at the call, which based on the show is, is more prevalent in the U.S. I know that, uh, for example, in, um, in Memphis, 20% of police officers have been taught to deal with uh, these kinds of crises and have more support from crisis training and crisis management teams. Is that where you want to go? is that is that where we should be going? Um, I, more more training, more more of these uh, response teams, um, first line as opposed to second line response?
3: I, I would say there are three stages. Um, the first, as I alluded to in my first comment was we need to have better resources in the community that people are able to access so that they don't end up in a mental health crisis that requires a 911 call. Second is having a broader array of ways of responding when that 911 call comes in. So Calgary, for example, is looking at a model where there may be circumstances in which it is a mental health worker who is the first responder uh, not putting police into some of those roles. And then the question becomes, well, where are you going to draw the line on that? What are the kinds of calls that are suitable for a re- redirection and diversion to a mental health resource versus the ones that should get a police response? And then the third level of responding is having police given a suitable range of skills. And and they are trained in de-escalation. And of course, yep. they're, they're trained on containment. Yep. But Putting them in that position on a frequent basis, which is what is happening, uh, leads to some of these negative outcomes.
1: I'm talking to doc, uh, Dr. Patrick Bailey. He's a psychologist who consults for the Calgary Police Department, and he's with me. And we're talking about uh, resources. We've only got a couple of minutes left. I'd I'd love to have you come back on because this is uh, we don't have enough time. And uh, uh, Patrick, if you join us another time, because there's so much more to do. But I guess my 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 last sort of question or the, the piece that I want to talk about is. Um, As simple as the uniform worn when showing up to the call. Um, Have you done any studies or have you looked at the response to, let's say, plainclothes police officers versus fully uniformed officers uh, when responding to to people in
3: crisis? I have not done the studies, um, but you referred to Memphis, and and Memphis has the crisis intervention team, which is their 400-odd officers who have been trained to deal with these calls. And one of the—it may seem like a small feature, but it makes a difference. A CIT-trained officer has a particular pin on their uniform so that when they respond, if this is an individual who has had previous interactions with the police— they know that the the individual knows to look for the officers who have this crisis intervention team pin. And so in that way, it's a little bit of comfort in knowing that this is not going to be a fully armed response. This is not somebody who uh, may be relatively new on the job and hasn't ironed out some of those skills, but rather this is an individual just by the, the nature of wearing the crisis intervention team pin who may be able to provide some additional assistance.
1: Well, I'll tell you, my friend, I am really pleased that you are involved in this kind of activity. It's nice to know that there are studies and that we are moving forward in the right direction. We definitely need a better line of response when we're dealing with people who are, you know, quote unquote, perhaps out of their minds at the time. Um, and, you know, the, I guess the last little piece, we've only got about 30 seconds left, uh, last little piece, once once they're involved in the in the intervention, are they then moving them to a proper, not that it's not proper, but to a, an established crisis unit, perhaps in a hospital, or, or is that what you were referring to very quickly here? Is that what you were referring to in terms of having limited resources after?
3: And, and that's, that's certainly one of the issues to have our members tied up in an emergency department um, because the hospitals are stretched at this point. Uh, we need to find a better way of dealing with that as well.
1: Dr. Patrick Bailey, he's a psychologist who consults for the Calgary Police Department. You are on the road to recovery. This is Yonabud 640 Toronto. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonah Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
1: Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. You are on the Road to Recovery. And my guest this evening is going to talk with us here about, um, you know, Eating disorders, what's going on in the media? I want to just sh- share some stuff here and uh, let me let you know it goes like this, right? So there the pro eating disorder, there's a whole group of people out there are these on, on the internet, on this within social media that are Serving up the wrong kind of messages. When I say the wrong kind of messages, is, I mean it's impacting people who have eating issues and um, problems with you know keeping their their uh, their body image in line and being happy with who they are in their own skin. And quick searches, like for example, on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, using hashtags like thinspo or uh, you know others here that are you know what what how what if I, how much can I eat in a day and still lose ten pounds? Like there's all these things out there that are considered pro um, pro ed content as it relates to extreme um, glamorization around calorie reduction restrictions, uh, extreme exercise programs purging laxative uh, laxative teas as a means by which, to, to keep weight in check. And those that suffer with anorexia or probulimia or you know bulimia uh, or other forms of eating disorders, it, this really spins a lot of people into a really bad spot. And you know, the type of contents leading people to pursue and achieve very dangerous weight goals. So without a doctor, without somebody a nutritionist, some expert that's there to kind of guide you through the process of what's good for you, you know, maybe being a size Five is where you need to be. And a size three is probably not healthy for you if you're looking at, you know, women's sizes and clothes or men's sizes. You know, do you really need to be a smaller is a medium good enough because it suits you better? You know, you have to get the proper fit for what works for you. And not everyone looks the same, nor should they look the same. And weight goals need to be developed with someone who understands it. Eating disorders become a mental illness if they're not handled properly or they can be driven by a mental illness. It requires good medical attention. To make sure you're lined up to do all the right things so that you're healthy not both just in your mind but in your body make sure that you're getting all of the right things every day and by not eating and only drinking water or whatever that silly diet might be that no one really told you how to do properly it's probably not a really good thing my guest tonight is heather galloway she's a graduate student at the university of waterloo and master of public health program welcome to the show this evening heather how are you
4: i'm good thank you very much good evening
1: um the this whole you know i i'm a bit older so my you know my experiences in social media are a little different perhaps than most. I I don't have the years of, of, you know, sort of learning how to build my life around it, such as, you know, it's more like just trying to figure out a fit into it, but for a lot of people, you know, people that are coming up, you know, they're now, you know, they're now mid, you know, mid-aged adults who grew up with, you know, social media as being a real thing. And for young people, especially today, social media is, you know, drives a lot of people's lives and choices. You know, how do we combat this negative messaging from these pro eating disorder groups um, with positive stuff? Because we don't seem, it doesn't appear that that message is as strong or as uh, easily found as some of these negative uh, messaging.
4: Right. Well, I think the source of the problem is a general lack of awareness about uh, the nature and prevalence of eating disorders. I think a lot of people don't appreciate how common they are um, and what they look like and how they manifest in people. Um, And that kind of contributes to an overall stigma surrounding eating disorders that can make people feel really um, isolated and uncomfortable seeking help. Um, So these social media um, communities, uh, this content that promotes and uh, glamorizes eating disorder behaviors, they kind of provide some relief from that uh, isolation in a way, which is really scary. Um, And it kind of allows people to connect over shared experiences, uh, to validate each other's behaviors um, so I think the solution to that how you combat that is to improve awareness about um, eating disorders in general and also about this type of content to allow people to recognize it um, and avoid it
1: but I think the messaging has to be as hip and cool as the stuff that the pro eating disorder uh, people are putting out these you know I, I checked out a little bit of it uh, and it, it appears that you know, it it, it kind of talks to especially talks to young people in a way I think is is very uh, impactful and, and probably ultra destructive, um, but I think the positive messaging on on how to do that you know how to how to you know the the, the stuff to combat this needs to be just as cool it doesn't appear to be that way I, I i'm hoping that you know you and your peers are working on stuff that's a little more uh attractive if you will perhaps to some of the people searching for certain kinds of content um what's the sort of thinking around that and where are you where are you getting advice and direction as it relates to the social media impact versus just the message itself
4: Well, I think that uh, you're right. Social media is a powerful tool. We can also use it to spread positive messages. I think that's a really important point. But The information information you're spreading has to be evidence-based. The National Eating Disorder Information Center um, does a lot of great work, and they have a lot of important information to get out there. Um, But I agree it needs to be put forth in a way that's accessible to people, uh, young people who are... um, you know, looking to have a good time online, um, but also to make sure they don't fall down, you know, a dangerous hole with the pro eating disorder content.
1: What, what impact do you think these sites have on kids more so than adults um, in terms of, Making choices when they look at some of the images, and I don't mean just uh, pro-eating content, but I mean content as it relates to uh, you know music videos and fashion and glamour type stuff. Um, you know, a lot of young up-and-coming TikTok new TikTok stars are out there, and you know, they're they're most of them are uh, provide you know show a lifestyle that may not be attainable for a lot of young people, including a certain kind of body image. Um, you seeing that that's having a big impact or is it just something that I'm kind of looking at as a therapist going, Hey, this isn't right. And maybe I'm a little offside.
4: I think we definitely have to question everything we see online. Um, I think the big risk is that uh, these lifestyles that are portrayed online are going to be, and they are normalized uh, for young people. So we get seeing them so much, as you say, like not just uh, pro eating disorder content, but, you know, all types of unrealistic content, unrealistic beauty standards, for example, um, they're so common. They're so heavily spooned to our young people that they just are normalized now. Um, and so that's really dangerous because now you have young people looking at this content, thinking that it's okay, that that's what's expected.
1: And, and at the end of the day, so when, when you're in your program, in your graduate program um, from a public health perspective, uh, which is even, I guess, even more impactful or more difficult. Perhaps we've got a couple, only a couple of minutes left. And what I want to ask you is, from a public health perspective, the stuff that you're learning and the stuff that you know your peers are coming up with, and what we're talking about for the future, are, how are they looking at addressing this from a public perspective when we're dealing with a a pretty, you know, uh, sophisticated, you know, somewhat public environment, but not really.
4: Yeah, I think that um, social media is definitely. It's such a public environment and it's so, so different from, you know, the kind of public health stuff that's been done in the past. Um, So I think that public health organizations really need to move the focus to social media, right? We need to use social media to build awareness about um, pro eating disorder content um, in order to educate people about what it looks like and how to avoid it and recognize that it comes with really important risks.
1: Well, I really appreciate you joining us, Heather. I'm talking to Heather Galloway. She's a graduate student at the University of Waterloo and Masters of Public Health Programs. Uh, we often have these kinds of conversations about uh, health and wellness. And as it relates to social media, we'd love to have you come back and join us. Uh, thank you for joining us right now. We're going to go take a little break here. Uh, this is Yona Bud, at 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery
0: with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
1: Hey and wound down hour number one. Hope you're having a good time here on The Road to Recovery. Appreciate you being here with us. Um, something that caught my attention, I've been dealing with, uh, as you know, throughout the, the years, if you've been listening to any of my shows, you know, we deal a lot with patients that have mental health issues and uh, issues with uh, uh, at-risk behavior, substance abuse, and so on. But we also deal with, you know, a lot of young people in, my, in our youth practice that have eating disorders of various kinds. And experts are saying that COVID-19 pandemic has led to a sharp rise uh, in eating disorders, something that's often led uh, to mental health conversations. Um, the An eating disorder, you know, is something that, you know, if, it, if, you, if it's a control thing for a lot of people, right? The young people get to control what they eat, what they don't eat. Uh, but according to Canada's National Eating Disorder Information Center, the first wave of the pandemic saw an increase of 60% of atypical anorexia and anorexia, and monthly hospitalizations nearly tripled. Between 2021 and 2020, uh, 2020 and 2021, increase of over 45 percent of referrals to the program, um, and we're talking about uh, Kingston Health Sciences uh, program uh, that deals with uh, eating disorders and mental health. And my guest this evening is the center's director of mental health and addiction, uh, Nicholas Axis. Nice to join
5: us tonight, Nicholas. How are you? Good, Yona. Thank you for having me.
1: That's uh, a pleasure. I mean, uh, you're one of the good guys out there fighting the fight, so you're always welcome on my show, brother.
5: Um, Thanks so much. So
1: the the um the, the whole concept around eating disorders for people who really don't understand it, maybe you can give us kind of a kind of a calls If you, if you're old enough to know what a calls notes version is, but <laughs> if you can give us kind of a summary of uh, you know how people, how young people, and people generally are affected by some forms of eating disorders.
5: Sure, absolutely, and you know the, those numbers that you rhymed off at the top of of, of this moment, uh, we've experienced that as well. So it's it's something that's happening all across, not just Ontario, but the entire nation. Um, you know, and and for eating disorders before the pandemic, it was always difficult. Um, you know, t- because you had so many people that were in need of service, and our outpatient programs did the best that they could. We were able to maintain little to no wait lists for both our adult program and our child and youth program. Then COVID hit. And much like the rest of the population, people were isolating, people were turning to substances to manage their isolation and eating disorders is no different, right? Like you said, it's about control. And much like with addictions, it's about the control of the food and the way the food uh, plays a role in being able to uh, monitor your body image, whether or not you're being successful or not. But along with that, there comes some serious health complications, but then also mental health that goes along with it. And, you know, in the best of times, we it's a very intensive and very, uh, m- many times people are involved in therapy for years to be able to, to learn how to manage their eating disorder and to move on and have healthy and, and, and balanced lives. Um, but the pandemic made it worse. And what we saw was a, a real big increase in the amount of referrals we received. So for example, my outpatient programs from 2020 to 2021, we had a 45% increase in referrals to our programs. Now, the increase in referrals, it's its logical, but what we weren't prepared for was the complexity and the severity of what's coming in. Usually when people come into our program, the family doctors identified them or they've had a couple of instances where it's, it's piqued somebody's concern. But because of the pandemic and the isolation and lack of connecting with people, we were having people show up in severe health crises, many of times needing to be admitted and stabilized first before we could start those therapies. Wow. And so, you know, for us... We went from, you know, uh, no wait lists and, and being able to manage people as they come in and, and very little admissions yep. to now having wait lists and doubling our hospital admissions wow. uh, during COVID, as well as the increase in the referrals. So it's the, you know, it's it's part of the, what I call the silent pandemic within the pandemic, yep. because I say that, you know, once once COVID's over, knock wood, hopefully soon. Is what's going to happen is you're going to have this last wave of mental health and addictions yeah. just overwhelm the system as people yeah. try to to get back to whatever the new normal is, right?
1: Uh, yeah, 100. I'm predicting for the next decade, it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a real uh, a real uh, mess out there for a lot of people to try to get themselves back in line. Uh, real quick question, um, mm-hmm. uh, Nicholas, your your particular training. I know you're the director of this. Uh, yeah, this, this department. Um, I assume that you're addiction counselor, social or
5: something. I'm actually a social worker by training. I've got my MSW. I'm originally from the states, so not the Cole's version, but the Cliff Notes. But I've learned the Cole's version up here, <laughs> uh, so I know I know it all too well. But you know, throughout my life, I've worked primarily with children, their youth, and their families, uh, whether it's in child welfare or child and youth mental health. And, you know, what's interesting is to see the evol- the evolving care for eating disorders, right? Coming from a time where yeah. it wasn't discussed or yeah. it was, you just need to learn to eat better to finally a realization of, you know, the impact trauma has, the impact yeah. genetics and mental health in families have, yeah. and the role that eating disorders play. In it. And, you know, the other big thing is social media, right? 20 years ago, it was very different, but now we're also having to deal with you know, Tumblr or Twitter or so, Snapchat. So, that, so that's
1: actually one of my questions is yeah. that uh, um, the impact that the, the media has been having on uh, young people with so, with eating disorders, we did a show last week about, you know, how people were being, you know, fat shamed and skinny shamed and, you know, all that kind of stuff It has to be very difficult. I, I assume, I, I, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, it must be very difficult for people to, you know, try to get comfortable in their own skin. And, uh, and be faced with this kind of, you know, eating issue of too much, too little, uh, and then have things shifted in the, in the media that, you know, kind of body shames you in terms of looking a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, how you deal with that in treatment, because unless people shun away from social media, which most young people won't, as you know, mm-hmm. you can't tell them to turn off the computer, how do you give them the strength they need to not pay attention?
5: It's about learning how to manage what's coming in, right? Whether it's through the internet, through your phone, through your conversations, um, it's about learning coping skills, learning ways to be able to change your thinking. And, and that's where the therapy is. But the difference we have now, Yona, compared to before, like when you and I grew up, right? Yeah. We we probably knew, like, at least I was bullied when I was a kid, right? And when I would come home, home was my safe spot. I didn't have to worry until the next day I went to school. Right. Well, now... There is no such thing. You go home. Social media is right there on your phone by your bedside table. Yeah. So we're having kids struggle with, you know, Instagram and and Twitter, where they say see thin inspiration blogs, or yeah, exactly. you know, you can be skinnier if you do this, or you can be you know healthier if you don't eat this. And and so, how do we manage with you know having them come in? To either a day treatment program or outpatient services, but then it's the phone and and the tablet that's competing with us in the evening, right, and with the family to to make sure that they can utilize the techniques that they've learned.
1: Uh, Correlation between suicide and eating disorders uh, in young people, uh, something that you're seeing a lot of. I I, I see some comorbidity stuff uh, in my practice where people are feeling suicidal around their body image and eating issues and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I assume you're seeing the same or not.
5: And what I would say is absolutely. I think all across mental health and addictions, what we've seen is a lot more presentations with suicidal ideations, a lot more attempts, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, some that are more successful. And, and the difficulty is, is that, you know, the system is strained and the system is trying to be able to, to provide that service. And so the concern I have with eating disorders is, is not only is the the mental health component, but the physical component, the impact it's having on, on their bodies. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we're, you know, there could be severe medical complications that require hospitalization and you can't really start to do the therapy till your body is, is safe and settled. Right. And I think the other piece too, you know, that we're not talking about either, but it's a big thing these last couple of years is the amount of males now who have eating disorder issues. Right. Because now, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all those social media apps, it's not about body image for girls. Now it's about body image for boys too. And you have to have the six pack. You have to have, you know, no percent body fat. You have to fit this way. And we're seeing a rise in, in, in male youth as well.
1: Oh, I, just so you know, I would fail miserably. Uh, on, the, <laughs> on the fat count, we've only got about a, we've only got a bit, about a minute or so left, brother. Um, sure. Although I, I, you know, I just want to say it up front, I'd love to have you come back on and, and be a guest uh, in the future. Because oh, just, thanks, I would love that. I, I love what you're doing, I love uh, just the way you're answering these questions. Works really well for me, and certainly for my audience. Uh, but real quick, um, how does how does somebody know if it's an eating disorder versus just watching what they're eating?
5: So I think the the the, the piece that we have to remember is when does it start to be something that is not part of your normal routine, right? Mm -hmm. Look, we all count calories or we all want to watch what we eat. I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I probably could stand to to get on a better diet, but at the end of the day, the food doesn't run my life. The food is not the major focus. Maybe it's my habits. Maybe it's something I do different, but with people that have eating disorders, it it, it is an intense impact on their day-to-day living. The food becomes central to their body image, to their worth. And and that's where the work has to be done. And I think what I would say to people is that if you know if you're noticing changes in your loved one's behavior, if you're noticing that it's going beyond just calorie counting and wanting to be healthy, and really is becoming quite more intensive and disruptive to their routines, it's a good idea to talk to your family doctor or to go to your local mental health uh, services and and have a conversation about you know is this something I should be concerned about? Because the problem is it will slowly evolve into something different. And in our society, food is not treated the same way as say alcohol or cannabis, but in this type of situation, right? Yeah, it's, I, it's a danger.
1: Okay. I, I got to cut you off. I could talk to you for a week. No problem. <laughs> uh, Nicholas Axis, One of the good guys, he's with the Kingston health service, uh, health sciences center. He's the director of mental health and addictions. He will definitely be back. So will I, this is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to road to recovery with Yona Bud. Only on 640 Toronto.
1: And welcome back to the show. Holy smokes, this thing was just flying by, right? Got a couple more segments left and it's over. I don't get to see you till next week. If you're just tuning in and you missed all of the rest of the show, shame on you. Now, you missed a whole bunch of fun and some interesting stuff. You're on the road to recovery. And I'm Yona Budd. I'm your host here at 640 Toronto. And thanks for joining us this evening. Um, I'm getting into a conversation here uh, shortly with one of my, with my guests. And we're talking about a a program. It's called the IMPACT program. And it's designed to help students in mental health crisis. Uh, And they're expanding that in the University of Waterloo. Uh, And it pairs basically police officers with trained mental health workers. So here we are on campus now. We're moving this over. A program that pairs campus police with trained mental health workers. Um, And that gives them the opportunity to respond to people that have uh, mental health issues and perhaps need a different kind of assessment, evaluation than just your general policing certainly your general campus policing. Uh, we'll get to that in a, probably another show in terms of the difference. But their integrated mobile police unit, it's called IMPACT, and uh, it's designed to help people uh, put them uh, put them together uh, it, And it, it, in hopes the program uh, will help avoid unnecessary trips to the emergency room. So until now, a common response to a student's after-hours mental health crisis would be for campus police to take them to a hospital for, for an assessment, something that Jeff Stanlick said can be very, very intrusive. Why it's also very necessary at times opportunities to provide support by the right person at the right place is preferable. According to Stanlick, he's the director of services for CAMH in the Water waterloo Wellington region, and he's my guest this evening. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Hello, Yona. Good evening. Thank you for staying up late to play with us. Um, so this is like, I've got so many places to go with this conversation. Uh, I deal with a lot of students, uh, university students in my private practice and, uh, our outreach programs and, um, the, it's a constant battle, right? It's two o'clock in the morning, super depressed, maybe did something, some substances they shouldn't have having a really hard time and really no one to talk to, uh, no nursing around, no medical team around. So like you say, when you're in a bad moment, it's usually a a roommate who calls campus police. Campus police are usually dispatched. And frankly, as much as I think they work hard to do a good job, they don't have the level of training. Uh, Tell me how you see this playing out in terms of training, not just not just pairing people together, but the training of the officers necessary to be paired with mental health workers.
6: That's right. Yeah. And. And the campus police have every great intention, of course, to make sure that 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 student or that individual is able to be um, connected to the most appropriate supports to keep them safe. And and typically, and to date, they've had to do that through a apprehension under the Mental Health Act, which requires, uh, as you mentioned, a person who's at risk of hurting themselves or others to be um, essentially handcuffed and transported to the nearest hospital um, for assessment, so the these situations are intrusive and and can intensify uh, the person's crisis. Um, and by having clinically trained staff readily available in the after hours, the assessment can happen on campus with the person, and that that actually translates to about eighty percent of the, um, diversions from wow. uh, the emergency department. Wow! That's um, and. The, the great thing about, as you mentioned, pairing uh, our clinically trained staff up with the campus police or the safety officers is that it also helps to build capacity with, with the team. Um, not just the campus uh, safety officers, but also the residents uh, staff, uh, other staff on campus. So you know I- impacts won't be available 24/7 at, at the campus and, and certainly isn't uh, at that level in Waterloo, Wellington communities 24/7 but building capacity with our with our officers with our partners is is a big part of of what we do and um, and can help can help those uh, staff and and police officers uh, to provide the best quality of support when when we're not available
1: let me ask you something so I, I want to spin off here and, and kind of just noodle a couple of ideas with you you know, it would appear that most colleges and universities have a psychology department, uh, a group of students, uh, most of whom are either bachelor's level or master's level. Um, are we looking at the, 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 the crisis response team? Um, what's the potential of matching, let's say, fourth year master's students with on-campus police to kind of take the pressure off of you and the trained people who are part of the uh, uh, CMHA and, and responding units and so on? Has there been a thought about sort of students kind of helping students, but the right training?
6: I I think that there's lots of ways that the partnership can go, and and I think that that's certainly a great idea that we can continue to consider. Um, We're still very early on in the pilot project. Um, we, We began at the University of Guelph in October of 2021. And then, of course, that was not a typical school year um, when, when things were getting better. Uh, Omicron yeah. hit and, yeah. and students went back to remote learning. So we haven't had a really good runway of, of the pilot project. What we do know is that we, we want to be as accessible as possible on campus right now beyond just the campus police, but resident staff. Um, as well who may be uh, connected with students who are experiencing crisis and but I do think there's lots of opportunity to to partner with um, with peers on campus to expand the um, support for students
1: I, I just you know I find even in my own practice when I use my younger younger therapists with younger patients they seem to respond well and I was just thinking you know college kids with college kids even you know just regardless of what they're studying I mean there's still a more more understandable than, let's say, a you know, forty-five-year-old uh, you know, uh, trained psycho- psycho- you know, uh, psychotherapist or social worker or somebody, um, just you know, maybe less off-putting. Because I'm finding, I, I, and I'm going to ask you the question. I don't want to make it about me, but I'm finding in my practice that the the, the level of suicide, you know, suicide idea, you know, ideal ideology in terms of of you know, looking at um, you know, suicide planning and thoughts of suicide. I, you must be seeing on campus the same, I, I would suggest same percentage as we're seeing in the street here, so to speak, uh, in terms of uh, high rates of suicide, suicidality.
6: We, we've certainly seen an, an increase in need right across the community and that would that would include our university campuses. Um, one distinguish I, I think is that is important to make as well is that there, there are situational uh, crisis life events um, uh, that, that might uh, lead somebody to a, a place where they're contemplating um, hurting themselves. And then there's also those situations where there could be the onset of a major mental health uh, right. uh, diagnosis. And, and that does tend to happen um, during the, the university age uh, group. So it, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think the, um, the peer concept is, is a good one. Um, for those situational crisis, you know, the uh, stress associated with exams or relocating communities, living independently, um, the, uh, the significant mental health presentations uh, really do require a, uh, another level of clinical support and intervention.
1: I'm talking to Jeff Stanley. He's a director of services for Canadian Mental Health Association in water waterloo wellington uh jeff um what what i don't know if you have the stats but is it generally we only got a couple of minutes and i got so many more questions um i have to have you back for sure but uh the 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 question i have is it is it generally a roommate or somebody in in res or in the building that this person is living in that that's calling for help or is it the person themselves so how many are sort of if you can quickly kind of is it the person reaching out themselves or is it usually somebody on their behalf
6: it's really both. Um, but typically what I would say is that it's the uh, the peers and and the leaders on campus that might uh, observe somebody struggling and not doing so well. They might see a change in in the person's behavior. Uh, the individual might be isolating more than you know they typically would. And And in those situations, they are are typically used to reaching out to the campus police or the safety officers who will respond to the person's residence or situation. Um, So that I would say is what we're learning to be the more common uh, situation, Mm -hmm. though it's really a mix of of everything. Students are also welcome to to simply walk in or contact uh, our impact team on campus independently also. Uh, The other other, um, piece I would mention is the uh, counseling and uh, clinical services during the daytime hours at universities yeah. have the ability to, uh, there's really a communication pathway back and forth with okay. our team that work the after hours. And so there might be times where we may follow up with somebody on the weekend or in the evenings to, to, to check in and see how, how they're managing.
1: Yeah, I was going to get to that in terms of aftercare, but you answered the question. Uh, if you're just joining us uh, a little late here, I'm talking to Jeff Stanley. He's the director of services for CMHA in Waterloo, Wellington. And we're talking about a program on campus that's uh, designed to help uh, police officers, campus police respond with mental health support uh, when uh, meeting the needs of a uh, student who's uh, in crisis, generally driven by mental health. Thanks so much, Jeff. We'll have you back on again. When we come back from break, we've got one more piece to do. And uh, so much more to talk about this evening. Thank you for joining us. This is Yona Bud, The Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
5: Okay,
1: welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, the morning, the evening is just flying along here, and uh, we've got some continually good stuff to talk about. Uh, if you don't know where you are, you're on The Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud at 640 Toronto. And we're talking about ways to help people get out the other side of the stuff that bugs them. You helping them, we help them, they help us, we help each other. That's kind of what this is all about. And constantly we're looking through, you know, different forms of news and media to see, you know, come up with ideas of things to talk about that really do make sense and we think make a difference uh, in the world and certainly in the world of recovery for people that are trying to manage their mental health and addiction. Harm reduction uh, issues um, is a big deal in Canada. We have a serious problem with opioid crisis and just alcohol and drug uh, substance use uh, in general. Uh, There's an organization in Thunder Bay, which, by the way, is really getting hammered. You know, if it was a tornado or uh, if it was a tornado or a flood, the government would be sending in troops. They're having a really hard time in that area with people that are suffering um, opioid overdoses and the staff in an organization called elevate nwo it's a community-based harm reduction organization in northwestern ontario can imagine that they they must be like crazily busy all the time um, the further north we seem to get the harder that it seems to be to get the help for the people that need it but fortunately people like this organization are intact to do that their executive director holly govin uh, is here with us this evening. We're going to get to her in just a second. But it's suspected that 118 people died from opioid-related overdoses in their area, in their neighborhood. Uh, on a per capita basis, that's more than even in Vancouver, which is where we call the, the epicenter of the opioid crisis. In this country, maybe Thunder Bay is going to take that to new title, unfortunately. It's not something you want to win. Um, but I'm concerned about uh, a whole bunch of stuff here as it relates to this. And um, we're going to talk with... Um, our, our new friend, Holly Gauvin, here right now. She's the executive director, as I said, of Elevate NWO and Fender Bay. Holly, thanks for joining us this evening.
7: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, there's so many things I want to talk about. We're going to have limited time, so I'm going to try to get through the stuff that I think is probably most prevalent right now. Um, the concept of safe supply. I, we've been talking to people off and on on this show in Vancouver, Alberta, um, you know, it seems to be all over, the, all over the map in terms of uh, what safe supply is all about? We just got off the, uh, just interviewed a pharmacist in Ottawa who pro- helps provide safe, you know, safe drugs, so to speak, in, in a pharmaceutical environment, get them the help that they need. Um, what are we, how are you managing, man? Like, the, the, you, I don't think you can come up with a safe enough supply to keep up with the tainted stuff.
7: Yeah, it's, um. Uh a, a never-ending uh, a crisis here. So we're in uh, a, a multitude of uh, crises here. We're still, you know, fighting our way through COVID. We're still fighting our way through an HIV outbreak. Um, oh. We have uh, overdose numbers, as you mentioned, you know, higher than Vancouver. Yeah. We also yeah. have uh, double the homelessness per capita that, uh, that Ottawa has, and even higher numbers than Toronto have. Um, our food costs are high. And so we're all All we're seeing is uh, just the end results of poverty uh, all over the place. And so uh, this, the fact that we we have so much substance use occurring here is is no surprise. It's all about coping. Uh, and people are coping the very best they can. Um, but they are in uh, very high risk situations, uh, because our supply is just so very toxic right now. Um, safe supply is truly the only way uh, forward. Uh, uh, we're dying here. We're literally dying literally. here. The 118 people that you talked about are people yeah. who uh, who frequented our place uh, and were members of our, of our Elevate community and family. And uh, it's had devastating effects uh, across our community. And you know what it turned to? More substance use. Oh. right? As people then cope with the loss and the bereavement. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a real struggle.
1: What's, uh, where's the Ontario government and all of Dougie's money? <laughs> Where Where's the 300, 350 odd million that, uh, is, uh, his, uh, his, him and his crew decided to put towards mental health and addiction. And, 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 you know, and, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Minister Tabolo was all over, you know, talked to him many times. Yeah. We're putting money where it's needed and more beds, more help, more therapy. Clearly that's not the case. I mean, this is, uh, this is a tsunami of mental health and uh, addiction devastation. Um, Why is no one stepping up?
7: It's a hard sell. Um, You're talking about people engaging in what is still and what continues to be criminal behavior. Uh, And so it's a very hard sell, uh, uh, politically speaking. We have seen uh, uh, some support come through both uh, federally and provincially um, uh, to help out with some of our addiction programs. Uh, But I, but I, I'm personally struggling with it because it's uh, it seems to be the programs that are interested uh, in people who, who are um, ready to engage in programming and services to end their use, and that's just not the story for everybody. Yeah. Not every yeah. person who uses yeah. substances will recover, and not yeah. every person uh, 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 wants to recover. Some people are unwilling. Some people are unable. And at the end of the day, it all comes back to human rights. And who are we uh, as Canadians if we're not supporting a person's right to to what happens to their body, right, and what happens to their mind? And we still need to provide them with housing we still need to provide them with food and still by god have to provide them with dignity Uh, and and that's just not happening the focus is on abstinence-based programming, or appears to be on abstinence-based programming Um, and we really really need to start to see a shift uh, across uh, the spectrum of services that also uh, balances that uh, on the other end of the continuum with people who are you know, as I said, unwilling, unable to to make those changes, but still be supported with dignity and still have access to those basic things that they need to live.
1: Um, I got a lot of questions. I'm going to try to get through a few more, but uh, I know it's not easy stuff to talk about quickly. Uh, If you're just tuning in, by the way, I'm talking to Holly Gauvin, uh, she's the executive director of Elevate NWO in Thunder Bay, trying to save lives every day. Uh, we just, our previous guest was a pharmacist in Ottawa. And I don't know if you heard, um, uh, Holly, but uh, he was talking about, you know, it's not our job. We have to stop as, as healthcare providers and, and, and those that are helping in the mental health and addiction field. We have to stop defining what success is for our patients and colleagues and clients. I think they, and I think that's where the dignity comes from. I think they have patients, my patients, your patients, they all have to decide you know, what, what do they want? So are they looking for, a, you know, th- their intention is to be on methadone or suboxone for the rest of their lives, or are they looking for a safe supply? Cause they have no intention uh, of giving up at this point, their mental health state or their, their, their readiness for therapy just isn't there. You can't force that, right? As you know, so my concern is, you know, I've always been talking, I've always talked in the harm reduction field about testing. Um, so I'm just going to flip there for a second. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, you could get me started there and go on forever. But the, the, the ability to do, to do some testing before use, um, are you set up for that? Can you test the stuff to see how horribly tainted it is or will it really matter to the people you're working with?
7: Uh, so that's definitely a two part answer. So the first part is that it's it's challenging. So we do have that access to that uh, support in our our community. Um, the problem is that you have to burn off a fair amount of the substance that you've yeah. just spent a lot of money on. And so yeah. some people unwilling, unable uh, yeah. to do so. So that's one. And there is an element of of, you know, gambling you know, that yeah, comes with yeah, it, that it's, yeah, it, yeah. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Yeah. I, I want to use, I want to get out of pain mentally. And if, and if this is
1: the one that kills me, so be it.
7: Yeah. There's a, almost a fatalistic sort yeah, of yeah. Uh, acceptance that comes from it. And that is coming from people who, have been really broken by systems yeah. who vilify them. And so, you know, we really need to change that narrative. And you're so right about uh, the people define what success is for them. We staged intervention last year um, around housing for people using substances. So we have harm reduction housing units. Substance use cannot be used against you or used as an excuse to kick you out. Uh, and the success rate is absolutely incredible. Are they still using Absolutely, are they better tenants? Absolutely. Yeah,
1: but are they? Buttons? Here's the deal. Here's where I come from. We only got about a minute left, but here's where I come from. I'll give you one last question. Um, you know, if if you're not robbing, stealing, and cheating, then it's you know you're probably already better off, right? So yeah, uh, that's a, you know it's a big keep out of the prison system, keep out of uh, out of uh, local jails. You know, keep away from violence and potential for that kind of physical harm. Really quick though. Um, what's your plan going forward? Like, I mean, you go to work every day, you're running a, a you know, an organization that's, you know, literally saving lives. Where, just personally, just, we got about 30 seconds. Where do you find the energy and the momentum to do it in the midst of something that really sucks right now?
7: Uh, I would say I'm inspired every day by the people that we serve. Uh, if they're willing to keep fighting, uh, then, then who am I not to fight along their side?
1: Holly Gauvin, Executive Director of Elevate NWO in Thunder Bay, and it seems to be a night of dealing with great people. She's certainly one of them. Uh, Thank you for joining us. We'll definitely have you come back. So we're talking about, uh, we're just finishing the discussion about opioid deaths and opioid overdose and safe drug supply and so on. Imagine if all of a sudden your milk in the fridge could kill you and you didn't know which one it was. And if you bought milk from the local store, you're better off than if you bought it from the guy around the corner who had it on the truck because it was cheaper. Chances are if you didn't have the money, you'd buy the cheaper milk, even though potentially it could kill you. We'll be back. We got more stuff to do. You're on the Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto.
1: Hey okay, and welcome back to the show. We got a lot going on tonight and uh, so glad you could join us. I know you have other choices and we're glad you chose us. You're on the road to recovery. This is Jonah Budd here on 640. Thanks uh, for hanging out. Well, you know, there's a lot going on in the world today and especially when it relates to going back to work and staying at home and not staying at home with Couple of weeks ago, we did a show about you know being uh, sick shamed. I use the term sick shamed when you're at home. Ah, come on, you can work and You're at home, can't be that sick. You can go through a file at least or something, can't you? So learning how to enough to learning to say you know no is really important to be able to if you're sick and you're at home, don't work. Pretend like you have to go to the office. The fact that you can do it from your bed or your living room doesn't mean you should do it necessarily. And I'll tell you something: it's it, it's we're seeing it in the results of all kinds of statistical analysis. Uh, A good friend of ours, Paula Allen, she's going to join us here in a second. She's the global leader and senior vice president of research and total well-being at LifeWorks. LifeWorks released its monthly uh, health index, uh, which reveals the mental health index score for Canadians is minus 10 and a half for March, an improvement from February. I don't know, anything minus doesn't seem like it'd be any good for me. Anyway, this month, LifeWorks explored Canadians' abilities To disconnect from work, finding that 28% of them are struggling and disconnecting, struggling with, excuse me, disconnecting after regular work hours. Yeah, it's tough to turn it off when it's you know just going to flip a computer switch as opposed to actually get in your car or on a bus and come home. This indicates another long-term mental health risk for sure uh, for people and Canadians to consider, and organizations and employers to talk about. Life work is life works is also revealing that Canadian workers are ending their workday feeling mentally or physically. Exhausted Paula Allen, and all of my days feeling like that. Help
8: me. Yeah, well, yeah, this is definitely a situation that we need to pay attention to, to Johan. I mean, the whole idea of being able to disconnect is is important because we you know we we need a variety of experiences in our minds. We need work and accomplishment, but then we need fun. We need white space, we need creativity. And if you can't disconnect from work, then there's no room for those other things that are that are important to our well-being.
1: So um, if you're just listening in, you're uh, listening here to Yonabad. We are on a road to recovery. I have my guest here is Paula Allen from LifeWorks. Um, according to the highlights of uh, this report, 27% of Canadians find it increasingly difficult to concentrate on their work, and 35% find it increasingly difficult to be motivated to do their work. So are we at a point, um, Paula, where people just are like getting out of bed dreading that they have to get to the office or even get on their computer are we talking about this vir- in the virtual world or are we talking about people that are physically getting up to go to work uh, outside of the home
8: i think i think it's both and i think it is because we're just exhausted yeah you know we've been through but life has its ups and downs and strains and, and things that exhaust us, generally speaking. Um, but it also has the things that replenish us and the things that inspire us. And, and we've had an imbalance. You know, we've had more things that are exhausting, uh, just change and uncertainty and risk and all of those, the frustration. Uh, and, and and that hasn't been, been good. We've also had our worlds become a little smaller So the variety of things that gave us energy before, especially being with other people, has become less. So, you know, those two things working together, it's not surprised that people are feeling drained and exhaustion. And add to that the very, you know, practical thing, which is that, you know, people have been working longer hours. We've actually been, because of this, you know, exhaustion, um, a little less productive per hour, and working longer hours to to keep up our 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 accountabilities.
1: And that isn't that kind of like a uh, like a never ending vicious cycle, though, because you're staying up longer, getting up earlier to get the work done that you're not getting done because you're exhausted and you can't concentrate. So you become more exhausted trying to concentrate. Is it like? you know, if I was talking to a patient who was displaying that kind of behavior, I would certainly tell them to step away, take some time, breathe, you know, take a half an hour away from whatever it is you're doing. If it's at work, physical structure, get up and leave the office, go for a walk outside, go to the lunchroom, do something. Um, What are you, what are you telling people? How are you telling people to get past their exhaustion, so to speak?
8: Well, for sure, you have to stop that cycle because you articulated it pretty well. You know, the longer this goes on, the worse it'll be and the harder it is, is to get, get out. And I think we need to understand that there's certain things that we need as human beings, and it's not just efficiency. I think we have been focused very much on trying to be efficient in the things that we do. So we work and we work, you know, in a in a very kind of um, ongoing focus, non-break sort of way. And we think that that's helping our productivity, but it damages it in the, in the long term. So whether we're returning to the office, whether we're working from home, we have to think of the the need for variety. We absolutely have to have uh, social support and social contact, regardless of of, of where where you're working. Uh, We have to have some physical movement. Uh, We have to have breaks where we have creative white space. And and right now, the structure of the way things are don't really build those in. So we have to be intentional about uh, building them in. So we have to stop that cycle in one way or another. And sometimes you can do it by adjusting how you work. Sometimes you need to take a pause and then rethink about how you're going to start a, start up again.
1: Now, is this, is this a phenomenon, again, is this a phenomenon that you see more related to those that are working virtually from home? Or is this impacting those that are actually getting up and going to their physical space and coming home at the end of the day um, or both?
8: Both of it in different ways. <clears throat> Much of what we're talking about is really a little bit more acute in terms of that, just that, that a- a exhaustion, working the extra hours, um, you know, difficulty disconnecting. It's a little bit more of a phenomenon for people who are working from home. And because when you're working from home, you have technology, which allows you to be on for 24 hours. Yeah, you, have the, yeah. you have the capability of working, working forever, but Those in the office who have not, you know, had that experience, those are going into the work site as well. They're also exhausted, but for different reasons. You know, when you think about how it's been going into a work site right now, very often you're, you know, at the very beginning of of this pandemic and and up until very recently and, and to a certain extent even now, it was, it was pretty high risk. Like you're dealing with the public, yeah. you're dealing yeah. with, you know, you know attitude. So it's not even just the virus, it's the risk of the virus, it's the risk of, you know, people's anger um, and enforcing policies and different protocols and supply chain issues. And, and now, you know, people who are, are, are dealing with the front lines are really suffering because yeah. the population is on edge. You know, people are, have a shorter tempers right now. There's more conflict. There's more cynicism. So they're drained, but not for the exact same
3: reasons.
1: Uh, of the 28% of Canadians who are unable to disconnect after their regular work hours, 25% report that this is due to their manager continuing to contact them uh, evenings, weekends, and so on. You know, I, I do some coaching for a couple of companies. And one of the things I talk about and, and kind of preach on a daily basis is when you're off, you're off when you're on, you're on. What are you, what are you telling? I know you advise a lot, of, a lot of employers. And if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Paul Allen. She's the global leader and senior VP of research and total well-being at LifeWorks. And you're on the road to recovery here. Um, what are you telling employers?
8: I think that at the end of the day, employers, just like every individual, have to understand how the human mind works and what's important for people's well-being. And the need to disconnect, the need to have that space in your life to do other things, is, is important. That the always-on is draining, and at the end of the day, you end up—you're going to end up having people who are tired, who are less productive. Who feel disengaged, who make more errors. So, so as to sort of a, an overall top level, uh, it's important to make sure that people do have that time to regress, rest, and refo- refocus. Um, but I also think it's important to really shape how you're communicating, because people find that when they get, um, you know, an email or or a note after hours you know there has is research that they actually perceive it as more urgent yeah. than if it yeah. was in hours yeah. and also very largely perceive it from that is more urgent than it actually is so you know some organizations have have uh, adopted practices where you know, people can work and send send notes and, you know, clean out their e- email box if they choose to uh, after hours, but they need to be clear that this doesn't need to be attended to after hours. It could be wait till the next day. Just, just because my working hours are X doesn't mean that your working hours have to be.
1: I like that. So we only got a little bit of time. I'm interested in this mental health index. It's, um, by the way, this research, is it available to people if they want to find it somewhere? Is it on your website?
8: Absolutely, publicly available, and always will be. It's on uh, LifeWorks uh, corporate site, so LifeWorks.com dot com, and uh, you can type in the search bar "mental health index" or in any search ing- index, uh, search engine uh, LifeWorks Mental Health Index, and we have all the reports uh, that we have published since April of twenty twenty. So you can see the progression, and we have them in um, uh, different regions. So we have a report with for Canada, U.S., UK, Australia, and uh, we are also adding a a pan Europe report as well as one for Singapore.
1: Ten and a half. We only got a half a minute left here. Ten and a half is that negative ten and a half? Where do we? Where should we be, Paula?
8: Uh, We should be at positive something. Yeah. What? (laughs) What? Okay.
1: Good. I'm not sure I was reading this right. Yeah. Yeah,
8: You're you're reading it right. Like, okay. So zero is basically we set a benchmark. You know, believe it or not, we were we were actually planning to do this mental health index even before the pandemic, and it just happened that we had completed our work and in 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 line with when the pandemic started. So we were collecting benchmark information from 2017 to 2019. And the idea is that we wanted to say, okay, this is where we are right now in history. And with, you know, with stigma being addressed with, you know, better technologies around mental health, we're wanting to see this thing go up. We want to see that the the numbers uh, go up in a positive direction. So we can track our improvement. Well, lo and behold, we had a pandemic and we had a massive decline. So any negative score is says that we're in a worse place than we were in 2009 and before. So that negative 10 says that we're pretty far from being where we were. And, you know, our objective was actually to be higher. So there's a fair bit of work to do.
1: Paula Allen, global leader and senior VP, and my friend, uh, of, she's a senior VP of research and total well-being, and my friend, uh, she's yeah. with LifeWorks, uh, LifeWorks.com. Uh, great talking to you, Paula. We'll have you back for sure, and we'll see if we can get closer to zero. You're on the road to recovery. Yonabad, 640 Toronto
0: you're listening to road to recovery with Yona bud only on 640 Toronto
1: welcome back to the show um, how y'all doing tonight I hope you're having a good time you're on the road to recovery here with Yona bud I'm in the studio with Natasha and Heather and uh, trying to make things work for everybody and talking about the stuff that we hope makes a bit of a difference for everybody and um, yeah, it's just really nice that we're able to get together here. I know you have other choices and we're glad you choose us. So thanks for being here. Ontario judge uh, recently rejected a constitutional challenge of law on the cannabis impaired driving uh, situation. And it comes as a result of a woman who was killed, uh, struck by by a driver and killed and her three young daughters in Brampton about two years ago. And the the Brad, uh, Bradie Robertson is the, Uh, he pleaded guilty to four counts of dangerous driving, causing death in connection with the June 18, 2020 uh, collision that killed uh, the family. He pleaded not guilty for four counts of operation while impaired by drugs causing death. And his lawyers filed a constitutional challenge of Canada's law, setting out a legal limit for THC. So not exactly sure what that means, a legal limit, but if you've smoked a joint, I'm not sure how much THC that is, but probably shouldn't get behind the wheel of a car and drive, right? So they argued that the limit of five nanograms means nothing to you, means very little to me as well. Of THC per milliliter of blood within two hours of driving is an arbitrary and overbroad because it doesn't uh, correlate to impairment. Defense lawyers have raised as a hypothetical uh, scenario that the possibility that a frequent cannabis users could have residual THC from legal limits, even, you know, from maybe the night before. It does carry over, right? And that becomes part of the issue of how we control all of this kind of stuff. We have an amazing guest with us this evening. His name is Michael Spratt. He is a lawyer with AGP LLP, their law firm here in Toronto. He specializes in criminal law, and he's going to join us tonight to talk about um, some of this uh, stuff as it relates to these new cannabis laws. Thanks for joining us tonight, Michael. How are you?
9: No problem. How are you doing? Great.
1: Thank you for joining us. Um, listen, the, the, the issue really be, comes with the fact that very few people really understand, I think, including law enforcement, how to keep track of THC as a uh, substance in one's system as it may or may not relate to impairment. From, a, from a, Just from your own personal experiences or, or from a legal, strictly legal profession perspective, and we'll get to your personal views later, Um, How does this really play out in a in a court battle such as this where, you know, someone's killed someone as a result of being impaired allegedly by cannabis, uh, or I guess it's proven by cannabis. And um, now we're arguing with what percentage of cannabis is enough. Sounds like we're going back to the days of uh, how much booze is enough.
9: Yeah, I mean, we we had that, how much booze is too much debate and that and it's a long settled, long settled legal issue. I mean, specifically for cannabis and alcohol, you can be impaired by any amount of alcohol, even if you're under the legal limit. But what they were saying in this case is that the legal limit of five nanograms per milliliter of blood um, is arbitrary. We know generally people at, at uh, 80, milli- 80 uh, uh, milliliters of alcohol per uh, per 100 milliliters of blood, that they are impaired at that level. We've studied that. There has been decades and decades of study on that. And it was easy to study because alcohol was, was legal. There was, has been less study on cannabis. Um, people are less familiar with cannabis. They're less familiar with uh, the point at which they become impaired. And um, because cannabis has been illegal, there's just been less study and experience with it. And it's also you know, um, metabolized and, and present in our body differently. And so you know, this is the first of what I suspect will be probably a continuing battle all the way up to the Supreme Court about is that five nanogram amount? Is that enough? Is it reasonable or is it just sort of a number pulled out of a hat with with not much to back it up?
1: So let's from a perspective of five nanograms, what does that relate to in terms of smoking a joint? Do you have any any kind of uh, correlation or any kind of comparison from just a street user's perspective? Is that like a half a gram, a gram? Like, can we measure it in that way?
9: It's hard to measure in the, that way, and that's that's what led to the reasonable uh, hypothetical of a heavy user right. who, um, you know, might smoke. And the expert evidence in this case was um, might smoke four times a week could have sort of a baseline level of THC in their blood that might exceed uh, the legal limit. Now, the, the case also pointed out that there are studies that show that someone who smokes at that level might be a worse driver anyway, but there were also other hypotheticals that that the judge found were not founded in the evidence, but were definitely uh, discussed at Committee, when when Parliament was considering what the legal limit should be, you know, a user who who uh, is a first time user who smokes at night might still have residual THC uh, in their blood the next morning and not be impaired. And people using um, uh, cannabis for therapeutic um, therapeutic reasons, like a cancer patient, yeah. So. It's hard to tell. You can generally tell, um, you know, if I have one drink, uh, I know I'm okay. Um, you know, some people, and I think it's reasonable, think that any alcohol is too much to get behind the wheel. But you know, one drink, I'm okay, and if I have three drinks, I might not be okay to drive now, but I will be uh, tomorrow morning. It's a lot harder for individuals to make that choice and calibrate stuff uh, when we're looking at THC and cannabis. So we have a, a
1: ton of questions and very little time, so I'm going to try to get as many in as I can. Uh, the testing that's being used today, have, have last I've heard, that didn't, no one's really landed on um, kind of a, uh, uh, a testing platform that, that's actually verifiable and, and works. Is there one that we're using now that's, you know, that is going to be challenged in court, or is there a, an accepted uh, uh, system now that people are using that... has proven to be a little more
9: reliable. Yeah, there are proved instruments that that can be used um, at the roadside. And a lot of police forces decided not to use those instruments because they didn't operate in winter conditions, which is a bit of a problem in Canada, or they needed to be kept perfectly level at all times, which is hard when you're driving around. What we're generally seeing is when we're looking at uh, impaired by drug charges, there's roadside screening coordination tests, and then there's drug recognition experts right. that deals with impairment, but it doesn't deal with the amount when we're looking at amounts like this, generally we're looking at blood tests and, and compelled, you know, sampling of someone's blood. And usually we're only seeing that in these very serious cases as, as this case, which resulted in, in, you know, a very tragic and unfortunate deaths.
1: I have a whole bunch of patients that use CBD, um, that, um, you know, as a result of having CBD, they test positive for THC without the impairment of the THC uh, and tons of patients use it for anxiety, for depression, for eating disorders and so on. Uh, and some actually use THC for some pain management, uh, but they can drive. I mean, they use their meds in a proper way. They don't use the THC unless it's in the evening before they go to bed. They wake up in the morning. It's still prevalent in their system. Uh, they, you know, their regular daily, maybe two three time a day users of either CBD or THC, is it such that they're not going to be able to
9: drive? Well, after this case, um, you know, there should be some concern on their part. But part of Parliament's intent with this legislation was to act as a as a deterrent, as a preventative measure. Right. And by virtue of that, it may capture, and the judge found here that. This law might capture some people who actually aren't impaired, but um, but that that sort of over breadth is reasonable in the circumstances, um, and that there is some connection. There is some expert evidence in this case dealing with you know how people became impaired, and it seems that the evidence that was presented um, was that uh, you know most people at, at five nanograms are uh, are impaired, uh, do exhibit signs of impairment. Now. That might also capture some people that aren't impaired. And the same can be said with, with the alcohol standard. If you have a habitual heavy drinker, they might not be impaired over the, over the 80, 80 milligram legal limit. But we have made a choice, Parliament has made a choice that is better to be broad and capture more people in this preventative legislation, given, um, given the purposes of, of, of the laws. Uh, then be more restrictive. So yes, those people should be careful. And indeed, when we see further court challenges, when we see appeals, um, court should definitely be presented with evidence like that because if if we can expand sort of the hypotheticals that court considers um, and it can capture vulnerable people, it can capture, you know, not just heavy users, but people um, like, the, like the people that you've mentioned, that might change um, uh, the court's decision.
1: I have one more quick question for you. Um, based on your experiences practicing law, uh, is this going to be something you think is going to keep the courts challenged for quite some time? Or is it going to be something you think they're going to have a swift uh, return because there's so many cases pending?
9: Yeah, nothing in, in the really justice system, system nothing in the justice system, unfortunately, is swift. Um, so what what I expect we'll see is an appeal of this case to the the court of appeal. Um, well, the issue is outstanding, there might be dozens of other cases uh, going on in Ontario and across the provinces. Um, then uh, in three or four years, we might see some of those cases from various provinces make their way to the Supreme Court for a final decision. So there's going to be uncertainty for a while. And that's sort of the unfortunate reality of, of the way the legal system's organized.
1: I'm talking to Michael Spratt. He's a lawyer with AGP LLP and uh, sharing with us uh, some information around the cannabis laws moving forward. We'll definitely have you back, Michael, as this thing unfolds and uh, see how we can uh, see how this thing is going to play out for everyone, because I think it's going to be a mess for a lot of people, especially medical users. And that's my biggest concern. Uh, Michael Spratt from AGP LLP. This is Yonabud on the road to recovery. We'll be back in just a minute.